You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 194, unless my math is wrong, and I am Nathan Gilmore, Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined this fine September morning by Dr. David Grubbs coming at you from Houston. David, how have you been? Oh, pretty decent. How are you about you, sir? I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, also from more northernly parts Dr. Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at, I almost said St. Bonifacius College, I've, I've been recording too much with Danny, at Crown College uh, in Minnesota. Michael, how are you doing? I'm good. St. Bonifacius College is a pretty cool name if you think about it. It's probably too Catholic for our school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, I, like I said, I'm so used to saying uh, Mount Aloysius that uh, I just needed that uh, initial monosyllable. Before gotcha. I got to here, <laughs> you could call it Saint Bonaducci, like uh, like Danny does. <laughs> That's true. He, uh, he also calls calls his own call. Well, I shouldn't say that on the air. I'll get him in trouble. Anyway, it's Mount Mount Bootylicious. He calls it. <laughs> yes, he I can't does. imagine it's going to get him in any kind of serious trouble. Ah, uh, that's true. That's true. And I've and I've sung a couple bars of the Leonard Cohen song enough times that uh. I'm sure any trouble he would have gotten into would have, would have done so by now. So, what are you at talking any rate, about the Leonard Cohen song? Oh yeah, Sisters of Mercy. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It, back 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 when Leonard Cohen was recording songs high enough that I could actually sing along. Yeah, <laughs> maybe a different kind of Sister of Mercy. I don't, you, you think? <laughs> anyway, uh, as we were just mentioning. Uh, Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, guys, what kinds of shows are hitting the air here recently? Uh, Sectarian Review put out the second half of their Monuments and Memorials episode, which I thought was really good, and I'm going to steal some stuff for the book I'm writing. Cool, man. Very cool. Also, uh, the uh, City of Man crew uh, did an episode on the Benedict Option. Uh mm-hmm a few months out ahead of the release of Rod Durer's book about the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think what else has been on the network here recently, guys. I'm, I think I'm there's gonna, by the time, by the time this post, there's going to be a feminist podcast. I think they recorded it a couple days ago. I think it comes out Friday. It may come out next Friday, but yep, sometimes that's right. Soon, that's right. And I, I can't remember what it's on. <laughs> your, your profiles, uh, interview with Richard Hayes, Nate, Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Oh, that was a fun interview. It really was. So, I'm yeah. really looking forward to that one. Lots of good stuff on the network. And today, we're doing a little bit of inside baseball. I, I think I'm the one of the trio that has to, the tendency to talk about the academic life. But there's been a couple articles here recently uh, that are a little bit worried about an endangered species in the university. We're going to be 
talking about that as we roll along. But uh, first, I want to set some historical groundwork for our conversation. And who better to do that than David Grubbs? David, when we talk about <laughs> university lectures, of course, we're talking about something as old as the university itself. When university students in medieval universities went to lectures, what sorts of events were they? And I mean, what kinds of differences would Bill and Ted notice when they stepped out of their phone booth? <laughs> well, one of the first uh, one of the first differences uh, I, I think would be probably the way that people smell. I, I always try to <laughs> emphasize that to my students when we're reading um, anything in ancient, medieval, Renaissance, basically anything before the invention of deodorant and regular bathing. Now, um, David, my understanding, <laughs> and I, I get this mostly from crack.com, so I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. My understanding is they actually bathed quite a bit more in the Middle Ages than they did in, like, the 18th century. Uh, that's true, but I still don't know that it would have helped that much because they're all using the same bath water. Gotcha. And it's coming out of the same river that all of their sewage goes into. Gotcha. So, you know, it's still pretty much third world. <laughs> they, they are marginally cleaner, yes. <laughs> Anyhow, um, funny stuff aside, if we look at the word itself, you know, lecture, lecturer, um, the, uh, Latin, lectio, to read. Right, mm-hmm. and you still see that in um, the the title in the British system, which uh, I believe ranks above lecturers, um, which is reader. Right, mm-hmm. good straight English word for that. So that my understanding is 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 initially that's what the teachers, what the the teachers in the medieval university would do they they were the one at the front of the room with the big book and they would read from the book and their their lecture their reading consisted of reading the text and then commenting on what was i guess interesting or difficult in the passage um bringing in what other authorities had said an explanation of the passage uh, it was an essential. It, it was essentially the the lecturer as the kind of annotated edition, right? You know, these days, uh, being a being a lecturer in an English lit class is is made even tougher by the fact that all of your students have, you know, some kind of Norton or Longman or Broadview or whatever, with, you know, half the page of footnotes stealing all of your thunder. You know, but, you know, back then, um, only the, only the lecturer even has the book really. (laughs) So, you know, there's kind of an advantage there. Uh, some other differences is, uh, the university was kind of a place where teaching happened and where teachers were gathered, but professors were, uh, almost kind of on a small business model. Uh, they had to attract their own students and they were paid out of the fees of their own students. Mm-hmm. Um, which meant if you were boring and didn't attract students, um, you, you couldn't support yourself. Uh, if you were, uh, if you were a good teacher and I suppose, uh, by extension an an interesting lecturer, um, you attracted more students um, the university smiled upon you more beamily. Uh, you know, th- th- things things were things were better in in that event. Anything anything we want to add to that? 
I, I don't have any uh, kind of accounts uh, ready at hand. I, I, I tried to kind of poke around and see if I could find like accounts of what it was like to be in a lecture hall, but I, I, I just I don't have that on my on my bookshelf at the moment. I uh, I would encourage our listeners to look at the album art for this this episode, which is a I think 17th century woodcut of a apparently very very boring academic lecture. <laughs> so, so, so the the notion that academic lectures are boring and useless is by no means new in the 21st century. Right, right. Um, one thing that I would add, David, and and honestly, I couldn't cite you a source for this. Uh, it's just something that I remember hearing at a number of occasions in a number of courses. Is that, for instance, the reason that we have the theology lectures of Martin Luther from the you know late 15th, early 16th centuries, is that students would sit and listen, and then they would return to their living quarters, and they would, from memory, write down everything that they had just heard. Hmm. So just, you know, one of those testimonies to the flexibility and the power of the human mind that, you know, in a, in a moment before there are, you know, uh, easily accessible and inexpensive notebooks, people simply waited until they got to a desk and then copied everything from memory that they had just heard. Mm-hmm. Which is, it, I mean, which is interesting because um, one of the arguments against having computers in the classroom is that students are tempted to write down every word if they're yeah. using a computer, but they can't do it if they're writing on paper. So mm-hmm. the more things change, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I think it's, I think it's fairly well established at this point that Plato was right and that writing destroys <laughs> memory, right? Well, I also wonder, I mean, when what we've got when we've got the lectures of Aristotle or I mean or the lectures of Martin Luther, uh those are by definition somebody else's reconstructions of those. So I, I'm not sure mm-hmm. that that argument goes away. Uh I don't think that it's, you know, uh, definitely proven either. I just think that we've got what we've got, and we don't have any way to get at anything beyond it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, their students almost certainly were comparing notes. All right, certainly. So, so what we've got is probably some kind of compilation gestalt best version of of what everyone was pretty confident of. It's like it's like the Shakespeare Quartos. Yeah, you know, say a little bit more about that, David, because that's a good example. Um, Shakespeare Quartos, which um, produced uh, some during his lifetime, shortly thereafter, cheaper versions, uh, cheaper printed versions of single plays um, that were produced have to have texts very much different from from the first folio, which which came um, a few years after his death. Um, and the question is, where did this text come from? And best guesses are. Um, actors' crib notes, um, mm-hmm. earlier versions of the play, but even more likely, guys sitting in the audience scribbling things down in shorthand, or later on reproducing what he could remember of it. Um, so that Shakespeare quartos are, are actually a lot like bootleg movies. <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. But that, that's not the the versions we read now, right? Um, the versions. Most editions of Shakespeare um, follow the folios much more closely, but 
frequently in the notes there will be interactions with the quartos, and sometimes a quarter a quarto reading um, is is chosen for the main text by an editor because they they like it, um, or it's more fun. Or it's more fun. Um, often it's pitched in the notes as the Cortos say this, and isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Well, Michael, I want to make a more uh, modern turn. The occasion for today's episode is not the long history of the lecture or even the long history of criticisms of the form. Um, but before we get to the counter-revolution, the criticisms of the criticisms of the form, we should lay down some groundwork and hear what these articles respond to. So what are some of the customary criticisms of the lecture as a way to teach? And when did these criticisms get loudest? As the album art notes, everyone gets bored at a lecture occasionally, but when do people start systematically criticizing them as pedagogical methods? I can't answer that question, but I suspect it's sometime in the last 20, 30 years. I mean, I, I think this is the, 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 the call to dismiss lecturing altogether is is something that has steepened in my academic career. Like I, I remember hearing many lectures when I was an undergrad. And um, meanwhile, I don't think very many of my colleagues lecture. So I, I, my gut instinct is it's something that whenever it started has picked up, um, picked up a, a substantial amount of force in the last couple of decades. Do you, do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I mean, if you read the uh, history of the English department uh, called Professing Literature, uh, one of the things you see is that, you know, there was a time in American education where college education was almost exclusively recitation of Greek and Latin. Uh So there wouldn't have been any lectures. Lectures would have had a place elsewhere, but not in the university. Really, they become the dominant form within the American university in the mid-19th century, give or take. And then, like Michael said, I mean, the strong criticisms of that largely come out of, I mean, first of all, you know, the the growth of systematic educational field research, uh, but then also, you know, a shift in the politics of the university, like he said, probably within the last 20 years. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's kind of the sense that I get. David, I mean, do you have any uh, lore to add to that? Well, there's also the Paulo Freire article. Um, yeah, right. go ahead. The, the banking concept yeah, of education. The, the, yeah, the banking theory of education, um, which, oh, when was that? 70s, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's been, there's been significant water under the bridge there. And there it's not a lectures are boring. It's more of a lecture reinforces a kind of hierarchy that Frere for for political reasons, um, thought was pernicious, pernicious. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there's some of that lingering in the background too, but most of the voices that I hear in, in, uh, in protest of the lecture are not protesting it simply because of that. They're mainly protesting it because of, um, well, the, the claim it's pragmatic. is pragmatic. They're, they're protesting it for pragmatic reasons. Yeah. Well, there's also the the proliferation of the of the whole learning styles lore mm. coming out of schools of education, um, which you know 
basically has given an entire generation a reason to say that they can't learn anything that doesn't come to them in their preferred way. You know, if you look at all the different uh, quote-unquote research about about learning styles, there's something like 175 of them. Huh. It's like uh, it's like uh, genders on okay, Cupid. Oh goodness! <laughs> if you if you if you don't like if you don't like the very long list, just make up your own. Although, yeah. to, to be fair to the sort of OGs of that movement, uh, when Gardner writes his you know famous book on multiple intelligences, his call to action at the end is not that students should refuse to take in a lecture if they're not an auditory learner. Mm-hmm. But it's to strengthen those areas where they know that they don't have inherent strength. Yeah, right. Fair enough. Well, yes, except except that I think which, it got, which is not to say it can't be yeah. abused, which is not to say it ain't yeah. been abused, but it is yeah. to say that the OGs didn't have that in mind. Well, it got internalized the way the current fetish with food allergies has gotten internalized. Okay. You know, we're making a lot of controversial political statements here. Well, it's it's like wow, this this student. You know that that you know they're they they have that hands-on learning style. Don't give them anything else. What are they going to do? You know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, like, it's it's a form of delicacy, right? I I'm I'm so special that you're going to have to treat me in a special way, or else I can't learn anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't. I I've been thinking a lot lately about how obsessed our culture is with delicacy, like like. This is this is what I think accounts for a lot of the the pro introversion stuff on Facebook. <laughs> like, like I'm an introvert, so if you and try I'm to talk to tell me, everybody about it, right, right. If you try to talk to me, I'm just going to shut down, and you can't say that some that's a problem because that's just how I'm special. And I, I think the the learning styles get treated that way sometimes, and so does so does as you say, food allergies. You know, let let me explain to you the ways in which, you know, I, I require special care and feeding. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm with I'm with Nathan here. It doesn't have to be that way. But no, that, that's no, the it doesn't. Way. It, I mean, nine times out of a ten, ten, when a student tells you, "I'm I am X Y Z learning style," what they're saying is, you know, you're a bad teacher because you don't let me play with blocks during class or whatever <laughs> I, don't, I don't know I, I don't know what learning style that would be but i'm sure it exists that, that would be kinesthetic yeah <laughs> so so some problems with with the lecture and and as as i noted these are mostly i think pragmatic issues people say well the adult attention span is much lower than it used to be and so even people who are in favor of lectures say you should use mostly short lectures interspersed with other activities because students can't pay attention to anything beyond 15 minutes. That seems valid, but as one of the articles we're reading for today points out, uh, you can train an attention span. It's not like it's it's not like you're born with it. People have low attention spans because they've never been forced to mm-hmm. develop their attention span. Um, so. That that's not a hard and fast rule. Although pragmatically, in a single semester, when you're reliant on teaching evaluations, perhaps it is a hard and fast rule. Because if their attention spans aren't sufficiently developed, and you try to lecture to them, they're going to tell your superiors that you don't know how to teach. Mm-hmm. What were you right? saying, Michael? I zoned out for a minute there. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't. I shouldn't act like my attention span's all that great. No, um, that's just a dumb joke. I was waiting to get in there as soon as you started on that line. <laughs> 
Um, le- lecturing is almost always these days contrasted with what's called active learning, which is mm-hmm. uh, probably in its simplest form discussion, but also like in-class projects, the so-called flipped classroom, mm-hmm. where they listen to a lecture at home and then come in and do activities, which, uh, you know, just to put my cards on the table, that's how I teach my intro to philosophy class as a flipped classroom, mm-hmm. which at least maintains the lecture in some form. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a class like Intro to Philosophy, I think you got to have a lecture. Um, yeah, so so like like I said, it, it's mostly these pragmatic reasons. The lecture is not effective. What I was surprised to learn reading these articles is that this pressure is coming from the STEM fields yeah. rather than from the humanities. Because I, I figured that the issue was, oh, well, we should conduct our English classes as seminars, which I do. Um <laughs> But no, it's saying you can't learn physics through a lecture, which seems weird to me. Well, uh, having having not taken a physics class since high school, I, I'm not really qualified to talk about it. But I, yeah. I would have I would have assumed that most of the sciences, at least early on, were taught via lecture. Mm-hmm. But I can I have a really hard time imagining an engaging and interesting lecture in engineering. Maybe That's that just means that I'm not an engineer. Yeah, you, you have a hard time imagining that engineering could be interesting. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that that that's 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 probably you know that that's that's my root problem. Yes. <laughs> but like, I, I have a friend who who's a biochemist uh, student at at the University of Minnesota, and he invited me to come sit in on one of the classes he was taking, and it was a history of science class, and it was ninety five percent lecture, and I was very interested in it, and I'm not a scientist. Mm-hmm. Now, they, mm-hmm. once you do history of science, you're basically – that's basically a humanities class, right? Disguised oh, as. But <laughs> I thought it worked very well. I mean, how am I supposed to learn about Einstein failing over and over again when he's um, when he's developing the theory of relativity, which is what the lecture I saw was on? How am I supposed to learn about that hands-on? Like that, that, is, that is information that is banked because it's, right. it's largely information. And some classes aren't largely information. Some classes are about developing personal values. Or I'm trying to remember what it says on my teaching evaluations. That's one of the things I'm, I'm supposed to drive <laughs> for. Um, but not every class is like that. And to try to teach a class that's like that as if it, as if it excuse Was. me, to try to teach a class that relies on the banking concept as if it relied on the other concept, which I, whose name I can't remember now, libertarian concept. Ah. Um, uh, not libertarian in the, yeah, not 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 libertarian in the uh, current sense, but libertarian in the sense of oh, we're setting these students free. Teaching the history of science, I don't see how you could set the students free. It's information they could later use to be set free, but they got to get the information somewhere. Yeah. Hmm. Now they could read a book. That's true. Well, they could do what, frankly, most students that I knew at UGA did, which was skip the lecture or do other work for other classes during the lecture and then go to the English writing lab and print off all the slides of their PowerPoint. Well, that's an argument against using PowerPoints, not an argument against lectures. (laughs) And then have the English department computer lab, um, you know, you know, watchdog um, calmly rip all of their printed out PowerPoints in half in front of them and tell them to go use another lab. Did you do that? Was that you? Uh, no, no, I didn't, but my wife got to. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like um, Katie, who's much meaner than you. Well, it was cathartic, frankly. 
You know, the English department at great expense maintains like the one free computer lab on campus for mm-hmm. composition students. And then all of these STEM students find out they've got a free computer lab and go and print off an entire series of 70 PowerPoint slides, each of which has like 15 words on it. David, mm-hmm. don't you understand that STEM is important? <laughs> it's not that important. It's the future of this country. <laughs> Uh-huh. Well, right. That that conversation actually went a lot longer than I anticipated. Let's move on to one of the two pieces. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's okay, Nathan, because uh, you're going to ask a question in a few minutes, and I'm just going to say no. And that'll be the end of it. <laughs> well, w- w- which would be characteristic, Michael. But I'm going to go to David with this one. Uh, <laughs> the first piece that we that we read together, and uh, we will have uh, links to this on the Facebook page as well as on the show notes for this episode. Uh, is from Mary Worthen, a history professor at uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill. And she wrote an essay called Lecture Me, Really, for the New York Times Sunday Review about a year ago. Mm-hmm. What are her criticisms of the anti-lecture movement, and what's her positive case for the lecture in the 21st century university? Well, her, her, her positive case for, for the lecture, um, she, she reacts to... Um, to folks who are positing active learning, um, you know, thing, things that we've been talking about. Lectures are boring, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what she wants to ha- hammer, and this is, you know, one, uh, one uh, person that she quotes, uh, the chairwoman of the classics department at Grinnell Grinnell College? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, Manessa Grendel College. Grendel College, yes. Uh, she says that a lecture is not a recitation of facts, but the building of an argument that, that what a lecture should do is not just sort of, uh, you know, like a, like a, like a, like a stork or, you know, a pelican just sort of engorge itself with encyclopedic knowledge, digest it slightly and then vomit it forth into the mouth of its young. That's, that's not what a lecture should be like a somehow worse version of an encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. Um, but instead putting together the facts into, um, into a coherent shape that makes them meaningful than in a way that, that, that they, that they weren't, in their kind of raw form so that what the lecture is doing is not just giving you things to know, but also tacitly making the case for why it's important that you know those things and how those things could be put together into, into something meaningful. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's not just that. Uh, and one of the things that she, she hits pretty hard is, is the idea that making your students, listen to a lecture is actually good for them. Um, it builds memory, it builds listening skills. Um, it forces them to, um, to take notes. It forces them to be active in particular kind of ways with the kind of information that a lecture can give. Um, I mean, Michael, Michael was right earlier. There's, there's some subjects about which you can't make an interesting activity or game. You can't game especially, it. Especially early on in your program because you, you need certain background materials before right. you're capable of, of playing the game. Yeah. But 
actively listening, actively taking notes, actively attempting to figure out ways to remember things, that's also activity. You know, a, a lecture is only a passive is is only passive education if you know that your students are going to learn it just by you lecturing at them. And we know that that's not true. They have to be active for it to work. Mm-hmm. You know, which which kind of busts up that whole wacky dichotomy. Um, so, you know, she, 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 basically I see two prongs in this essay. Lecture is good because it does something more than just present facts. It does something more sophisticated. It moves in the direction of argument. But also, um, we really do need to, to compel our students to become more skillful, more, um, more rigorous, more disciplined, uh, as, as learners, as thinkers, uh, in their education and lecture does that. Mm -hmm. So David, how convincing did you find this piece? There were some bits that I really liked, um, Mm -hmm. but we'll get to those, um, I think in a later question. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. But probably the thing that, that was least convincing to me Mm -hmm. is how much the article focuses on the, on the need for growth in the student. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, I, I'm persuaded that that's a good thing, you know, making, you know, leading the student to grow is a good thing. But so mm-hmm. much of that, um, uh, of the things that she says, it doesn't actually have to be a good lecture for that to happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's and, like, and in fact, a good lecture might actually stunt that kind of growth. Yeah. By making <laughs> it easier to do, you know, it's uh-huh. like, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, writing an essay in praise of, you know, push-ups. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you get stronger, but it's still not fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I would like to see some, I mean, there, there's a few stabs that she makes at, yes, no lecture is actually positively good. But for the most part, I think she capitulates to the criticism, frankly, of saying this is an inefficient means of education. And instead she's mm-hmm. saying, no, no, but it's good for them. I'm like, well, yeah, but maybe that wasn't the hill that we needed to defend. <laughs> what what was the hill we need to defend? Uh, the, the hill of there being such a thing as a good lecture, which I think the other article kind of points out. But don't you need don't don't you need to defend the um the motivation for having a lecture in the first place before you can talk about what makes a excellent lecture. Yeah. But if the, if, if the point, if, if the motivation behind the lecture, if the point of the lecture is just to give my students a grueling experience that they'll grow from, I could teach a class that entirely consists of them reading books and taking quizzes and that would be grueling and they would have to grow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> does that make sense it, it does so so that means if you want to defend the lecture and i don't know if you do mm-hmm. you need to come up with some sort of reason for it to exist yeah mm-hmm. which which i think can be done and what, um, what i'm asking you david is how you would do it well if, if, if you don't like if you don't like molly worthen's 
uh, motivation. Well, she's got one little quote, and then you know, as as I said, this is I, I think something that will come up later. But she's got one little quote. She says she quotes quoting someone else. Uh, a good lecturer is someone who conveys that there's something at stake in what you're talking about, and that that I think is pointing in the direction of 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 what a of what a good lecture is for. But yeah. It, that it's it's not just presenting arguments or presenting facts, but it's also presenting them um, along with that kind of personal presence that says this is an important thing. As you're talking about it, this is an important thing. This is a thing that you should be interested in and trying to convey not just um, how to think and what to know, but how to feel about what you're thinking and knowing. How does it do that in a way that a seminar wouldn't? Um, because I have very, very few classes that are ready to have a seminar at day one. Hmm. I think um, I've generally found that seminar attitude has to be caught. And the way that I try to get my students to catch that is by lecturing at them for a while. I lecture them out of the trees. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe the issue here is that I have eleven or twelve English majors, so there's never a class I teach where where the majority of them haven't had me before. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I right, feel like right. I feel like they are ready for the lecture on the first day, or at least most of them are, and the other ones will kind of get caught up in the current. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and besides that, you have or I have requirements that they speak, even if they don't say mm-hmm. very much. So it it forces them to get into the River. 80% of my teaching load is in the gen eds, and they have 25 students. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, seminars are very difficult once you get above about 15. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I, I get that difference. That's interesting. Well, Michael, I, I do want to turn to our other piece. Uh, this one is from The Atlantic, and the author is Christine Grosslow, and I probably mispronounced that. Uh, but the title is, Should Colleges Really Eliminate the College Lecture? Uh, you can probably guess at what the tacit answer is going to be. Uh, <laughs> she tells a story from her own academic days and offers a way forward by way of challenging the way that we do graduate education. So how does this piece propose to rehabilitate the lecture? She starts from the uh, the point of view that lectures are indeed boring. Uh, not, not essentially not as a genre, but as they are actually practiced in the real world, lectures are boring. And the reason for that is that we have turned our back on rhetoric. Mm. And in particular, we've turned our back on the noble art of oratory, which in Aristotelian, uh, analysis is part of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is to teach people how to orate, be that in undergraduate or perhaps graduate school. She seems to, she seems to think we should reinstate the speech class, which it was news to me that we don't have speech class anymore. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because, uh, Crown teaches about 45 sections of it every semester. And yeah. thank God I don't have to. But like <laughs> speech class, speech class is alive and well at the smaller colleges, as far as I know. UGA had speech classes they had to take, didn't they? I, maybe not. But maybe they didn't. I don't know. I know I had to take one when I was an undergrad. Yeah, me too. So, so I was really surprised mm-hmm. to learn that that speech classes were disappearing. If if uh, Grosslow is to be believed. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, so I mean, that's her. That's her call here. That that people wouldn't be so against lectures if there was such a thing as a good lecture, and we would be able to have good lectures if if we trained the people who will be lecturing appropriately, which makes sense. Uh, if they're not doing it, if they do it in undergrad, though, they're going to forget everything anyway. I took I took speech my very first semester of college. I don't remember any of it. I'm still not a great <laughs> public speaker. Uh, so, so I'm not sure that teaching in an undergrad is a place to go. Where are you going to teach it in graduate school? In order to teach at most colleges, you have to have 18 hours of experience in the field you're teaching, which means if you got a master's degree, you don't have space to put it. Mm-hmm. There's, um, there's, there's no, there's no free room. I guess you could, I guess you could put it as part of your, um, as part of your curriculum in like the intro to graduate school class most people take. Mm-hmm. The introduction to pedagogy class, I think yeah. most people take at UGA. It's just one class. Um, but even mm-hmm. there, if your graduate professors aren't lecturing, and hardly any of them do, uh, where are you going to get a chance to practice it? Where are you going to get a chance to model it? I, I just this would this would require, I think, a bigger revamping of the graduate program than Grosslow suggests. Mm-hmm. I think I did have I did have one professor who lectured. It was uh, John Vance, okay, at UGA, and his lectures were great. I, I mean, I enjoyed them. I took a Milton class with him, mm-hmm. and uh, I I thought his lectures were top notch. So I, I I shouldn't say you never get it in graduate school, but certainly most graduate classes are seminars, mm-hmm. as they should be. Coburn Freer lectured. Yeah, but I never took him. Okay. He used the same lectures for like forty five years, didn't he? Victoria talks about that. Yeah, that like like he had it down to a science. Like he he would use two pages. Yes. Of his uh, of his yellow legal pad, and at that point he he would know that class was over. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was it was brilliant. I took I took a Milton class with him, and it was either my first or second semester at UGA, and he would walk in, and it was the same every single day. He walked in at exactly the same time. He made some comment about some new story or recent event as kind of an icebreaker and then moved into his lecture and it was just 50 minutes of smooth jazz. Um, he was, Hmm. he, he was just on and, and funny and witty and insightful. And I couldn't, I couldn't recite to you any of them except that I ended every class day with the impression this guy really knows what he's talking about and that was that I enjoyed that. Um, so an- another thing that's worth talking about that that mm-hmm. um that, that is the that something Coburn Freer has that you and I don't have is he <laughs> probably teaches two classes a semester and he's taught some variation of the same five classes for 40 years. Oh, no doubt. Nathan, for example, teaches, I think, something like 117 classes a semester <laughs> to develop a Coburn I, I, Freer I'm style. I'm to here lately. <laughs> to, to develop a Coburn Freer style lecture for each one of them is going to kill him. Yeah. And while the world would probably be a better place if Nathan had 117 lectures. Oh, I thought uh, you'd say it'd be a better place if it killed him. 
Uh, you know, I was going to, but I backed off of it. So, so I, I think I think in some ways the the lecture is a is a holdover from the professor as member of the leisure class that we talk about on this program from time to time. That in terms of the reality, especially of teaching at small colleges, mm-hmm. it's just not going to happen. I I when I first started, I lectured in every class, mm-hmm. and uh, it it I I would work seventy eighty hours a week writing these lectures as well as doing all the other things I had to do. Mm-hmm. And eventually I just decided I don't have time for that. My lectures probably weren't that great anyway. And, um, yeah. So Coburn Freer has the advantage of teaching the same classes over and over again. I don't know how many classes he teaches, but it's not as many as I do. I suspect. Mm-hmm. Right. It's interesting. I, I took two classes from Coburn and I don't remember him lecturing in either one. Hmm. Interesting. And he must have been he must have done things differently in upper levels when I what I took was a was a split level. Ah, that's probably yeah. the, the key then, which is and, what I took with Vance as well. Right. OK. OK. Um, yeah. My, mine were both dedicated graduate classes. So they were seminar style. By right. the way, when we're talking about pedagogical moves to take from Coburn Freer, uh, he kept full size candy bars in his office. He did do that. Which I, yeah. I think uh, I think probably gets people to visit your office hours. I can't do that, however, because I would eat all the full size candy bars. <laughs> they, they would la- they would last less than a yeah. week. Oh shoot! He also made us memorize giant chunks of chunks of Paradise Lost, but I don't know how, if if that's actually pertinent to what we're doing right now. I, well, huh. I guess we're justifying the ways of Coburn Freer to man. <laughs> <laughs> Someone eventually was going to say yeah. that, listeners. <laughs> well, they, they use the phrase a couple of times. You know, well, they use the phrase in both of these articles. They, they talk about the phrase, the sage on the stage. Yeah. Um, that's and a negative term, right? That's, that's, that's a, that's a used as a negative. That, yeah, used yeah. as a negative term. But frankly, that's how he came across as someone who was a sage, who knew a lot, a lot about this subject. And he came and performed Milton Professor at us. Mm-hmm. And and Don Williams at TFC, Tacoma Falls College, where I did my yeah. bachelor's, it was the same way. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he'd been using these lectures for decades, but like mm-hmm. it was riveting. I mean, I, I learned, I I did I did very well on the um, the subject GRE, and I'm convinced it's just because I took seven classes with Don Williams because he just yeah. knew mm-hmm. so much and banked it. You know, and that was information I needed for the subject GRE, which, uh, granted, is a rather artificial environment. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that I mean, that could be its own podcast. Yeah, no, none, nonetheless, done well. Um, I mean, there, there's a reason why TED talks are, you know, a genre of thing. You know, a, you know, a TED talk is just a really good lecture in a short form. Unless you're Danny Anderson. No. Well, case, it's and, a, a and sign of the decay of, of civilization. And, and Danny, if you're listening, I'm, I'm oddly enough, I am of uh, Anderson's party. Although before we started recording, I didn't know it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that like, yay, all the TED talks, they're awesome, but they, they, they kind of exist as this thing that says, yeah, I don't know that the lecture has entirely actually gone out of style. Not really. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. And I mean the, the fact that MOOCs exist, not not um, dumb freshmen, but uh, multi. What is it called? They exist too. Massive multi role playing. Uh, no. no. <laughs> Massive open online, online courses. Yep. That 
that necessarily <laughs> works off of lectures. Yeah. And, and actually, that may be a reason for us to resist the lecture. Because if, if, if the way our classes should work is by a lecture, guess what? Eventually, administrators are going to catch on, fire all the professors, and hire somebody to deliver a lecture into a camera, which they then can use for decades to come. Which colleges are already doing. Right. So right. It, it may be a reason for us to resist that lecture. Well, but that's like saying that, you know, because acting can be filmed in the form of a, of, of, of a movie, therefore we need no stage plays. You know? Well, I mean, for most of North America, ain't that true? Yeah, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that the stage play is therefore this bad thing. You know? It does mean it's a dying art form. It does mean I mean I'm I'm talking you know. pragmatically here, David, not not what we should do, but what we what we better do if we want to keep our jobs. <laughs> so, so, so we so we'd better not lecture lest they record them and replace us. I, what what I'm saying is if our classes are lecture classes, there's a cheaper way for them to do that. And when there's a cheaper way for them to do it, they will do it the cheaper way. Mm-hmm. So they can hire more administrators. Yeah. It's it's the same reason I don't like to use the self-checkout lane at the grocery store. Because <laughs> I, I know that if everybody uses it, they're just going to fire all those clerks. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to turn to our own experiences here for a minute. I'll admit that my own confusion, especially with Worthen's piece, but also with other defenders of the lecture, is that so many times I hear people talk about the lecture as if college administrators were kind of driving lecturers into hiding, persecuting them like Hercules goes after evangelical undergrads. <laughs> uh, I've got, in, in my own experience, Obama is not coming to take away our lectures. So let's go around the horn. Let's see if you guys have the same experience. To what extent have the institutions you've worked for cheered, ignored, discouraged, or even outlawed the lecture? David, go ahead and start. Well, last place I worked, um, Central Christian College in Kansas, um, every year begins uh, with uh, kind of prep week with some professional development. Um and one of the things that was that was kind of frequently discussed was um, pedagogy, pedagogy. You know, always always polishing um, what you're doing in the classroom. And something that was repeatedly hammered was, uh, if you lecture, either don't use PowerPoint or don't have your lecture consist of what's already on the PowerPoint slide. Mm-hmm. Um, and That's that good and, advice, though. Yeah, and, and 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 that that to me, it's it's not it wasn't so much discouraging lectures as it was as it was kind of pointedly saying, um, here is a way in which lecture is becoming terrible mm-hmm. <laughs> by using by using PowerPoint as a kind of exoskeleton, um, in which you know your 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 remarks kind of exist. You know, and from which your remarks can be extracted with very little loss. You know, if that's what's going on in the classroom, then you might as well not be lecturing. Um, and that's and that's also there was a professional development at the beginning of the year this year uh, at HBU um, where a couple of professors, actually from the, from humanities, um, talked talked specifically about lecturing effectively. And one of them, uh, he's one of our uh, 
government professors talked about how he always lectures. Um, he uses PowerPoint, but the only thing he puts on PowerPoint is pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he only, and he only moves to the next slide when he's gotten to the next phase of his lecture. So he'll spend about five to seven minutes on a point. Cause he said, that's about how long it takes for them to get bored. And then he puts up another picture and draws attention to the picture, reorients them to the lecture, and then goes for another five to seven minutes about a different point so that he's built into his lecture this kind of repeated call to attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like that, um, encouraging, you know, kind of recognizing that the lecture can can become dry, can become dull, but, but you know, kind of talking about ways to, to do it differently. Um, I don't think I've ever actually been discouraged from doing lecture. Probably the closest thing to that is in student evaluations. There's always a, uh, there's always a few criteria that are, you know, things like, did you feel like you were, you know, like you could ask questions or comment in class, things like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've had students who checked, no, I didn't feel like I could ask questions in classes where I lectured. Um, even though in my lectures, I repeatedly asked if people had questions, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, I, I don't know what that was about. See, that's interesting, David, because at Emmanuel, I and some of my other colleagues have actually had students criticize our classes because they say the professor's not really teaching. He just asks us questions. So it's just the opposite dynamic. I mean, they're coming in expecting a lecture, and then when we don't, they say, well, whatever is happening here, it's not really a college course. Yeah, I had a student transfer to another school because I, uh, I didn't lecture. Oh, wow. Okay. Because, I mean, yeah, cause I, I, just I, I ex- because? Yeah. Like on the, um, like on the um, you know, they, they make them fill out a form when they transfer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it said because she wanted more lectures and less discussion. She guess where she transferred? Liberty University Online. <laughs> Yay. Anyways, well, none of my students are complaining that they don't get a lecture. <laughs> that's interesting. No, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I guess the uh, the common thread here is that students are going to gripe. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Hate, hate, gonna hate, haters gonna hate. Just, just keep, just keep walking. <laughs> How about you, Michael? I, I have never received any pressure to lecture or not to lecture. Mm-hmm. You know, like David, we have our school has the week before class of, of professional development stuff. Yeah, and we hear a lot about so-called best practices, which mm-hmm. strangely enough seem to change every year. <laughs> but we're never like pressured to use them. It's just FYI. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, here at Emmanuel, I mean, it's more of a department culture thing. So, I mean, you know, biology and business and history and psychology tend to be pretty lecture heavy. Mm-hmm. You know, education and um, trying to think English and mathematics tend to be more interactive in our teaching styles. But I mean, I kind of like you guys, I mean, uh, we always have, uh, workshops about pedagogy and whatnot, but there's very rarely, uh, any kind of expectation that, you know, 
you need to teach this way or that, except mm-hmm. for, like David said, on the course evaluations. And then, like I said, um, I, I've talked to a number of colleagues here who get comments like the professor isn't really teaching because mm-hmm. we do seminar style rather than lecture style. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's interesting. I, you know, um, I, I guess that's a, a dynamic that I didn't anticipate that, you know, I, I, I would have figured that, you know, students in Houston uh, would kind of have that same sort of expectation as they have in North Georgia that, you know, you go to school to hear someone <laughs> talk to you for a spell and then take an exam over what they talked about, mm-hmm. but apparently not. So I, that just shows that I've still got some learning to do. Maybe it's a hillbilly thing. <laughs> I have no idea what that means, Michael. So go ahead and finish the insult. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> not you, your students. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> who are, like, who are, yeah. Dad gum farmer. <laughs> uh, well, you know, my, uh, the, the farmers, the farmers come from Northern Alabama. So yeah. I, I don't use hillbilly as an insult. Exactly. Okay, all right. Um, they but, are but, your people. You you said you would expect people in Houston to to think that, but uh, I'm not sure I would. You, you're coming from a very rural area. Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States. Yeah, I would actually expect the attitudes to be fairly different. Mm-hmm. Um, Fair enough. But I I would be interested in some sort of um, socio demographical research as to which students like the lecture and which students would prefer discussion. And I wonder if it does break down on rural urban lines. Well, and I guess the other reason I find it interesting, David, is I've got a good friend from college who is a professor now at Sam Houston university. Mm -hmm. And he had to make similar adjustments. He was doing seminar style classes for all of his sort of core sophomore intro to lit classes. Mm -hmm. And in order to, turn his evaluations around he had to start structuring them around many lectures and then kind mm-hmm. of get seminar stuff in between the lectures yeah yeah so i i, I guess i i just had that uh, idea of texas and of houston in particular going into this so i mean what what you just said honestly did catch me off guard there <laughs> <laughs> well sam I, houston state university is not in houston though it's in texas <laughs> I don't know. I, I may be making too much of a school's location. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot. A lot of my students are. Um, uh, a lot of my students are coming from international communities. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not international students. Um, you know, they're citizens of the U.S. of A. Yeah. But they are. They're. They're coming from different um, immigrant populations. Um, that. Uh, have their own distinctive educational cultures, mm-hmm. right? Have their own distinctive attitudes towards what goes on um, in the classroom. Um, some of which they're getting from their parents. Some of which they're getting from private schools around uh, around Houston that preserve some of these cultures. Um, so I, I I never know entirely what I'm going to get when I go into class um mm-hmm. because it's it's such it's such an amazing mix of attitudes i i i i never know what i'm going to get you know a lot of my class could be coming from classical homeschoolers parochial schools um houston public schools sugarland public schools um science technology magnets mm-hmm. um anything chinese english schools i it, it could be it could be anything and i just never know I okay. bet homeschoolers are resistant to to lecture. No, they aren't actually. They like it. 
because because mm. um, most of the homeschoolers that I've met with value rhetoric. Interesting. And they enjoy mm. and they enjoy a good radical performance. Mm. I, uh, because a lot of them are then going on to work with um, the professor who teaches a lot of our public speaking here, um, who who also she also does forensics and debate um, and political rhetoric analysis classes and stuff like that. She, that's who's teaching public speaking here. Her name's Marie Motter. Um, and a lot of her students are, are actually homeschool students who have been doing forensics, doing oratory, doing debate um, all through high school and now mm. are, in, and, 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 and are interested in that kind of thing. All right, so, we'll just go to the show. It's super fun. <laughs> well, Michael, let's uh, turn from is to ought so that you can deliver your promised one-word answer. Uh, my attitude towards these things, as with a lot of things in the life of the college, is that professors should be free to conduct class sessions as they see fit. I'm not a lecturer, so I'd prefer that the powers that be not mandate that I lecture. Am I being too much of a goofy localist here? Should institutions have common teaching styles and methods? No. <laughs> well, that was easy. Well, so listeners, uh, he told you what he was going to do, and then he did it. And now, uh, David, uh, tell us why he just said no. <laughs> um, well, again, because it, it makes no sense to take someone who doesn't enjoy the lecture as a mode of instruction like me <laughs> doesn't um doesn't feel like that's their strong suit doesn't think it's effective it, i mean it, it it seems goofy to make that person you know follow that follow that method that's completely contrary to what they think suits them and suits the goals of their class mm-hmm. um i mean that's 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 just kind of goofy um what I do think an institution should have, though, is, is a recognition that there that there are some distinct different styles and give uh, give support in terms of professional development um, or formal or informal mentoring or um, whatever for helping in, helping particular faculty develop in the teaching style that they do prefer. Or in mm-hmm. or in developing strengths in the areas that I think they're weak, um, that is something that I think institutions can do mm-hmm. um, is is to kind of uh, help help us be better. Um, I mean, I'll, the, 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 frankly, a lot of college professors have never ever taken a class on pedagogy, mm-hmm. um, have never taken a class on teaching, and so what they're relying on is doing impersonations of the professors that they thought were best. Mm-hmm. Um, when they were students and sometimes that works. <laughs> right, right. You know, well, and, and that doesn't go away when you've taken some pedagogy and read some pedagogy either. I mean, I certainly, exactly. I, I try to be literate and reflective about my own ways of teaching, mm-hmm. but I certainly hear myself at times turning into Fred Norris or Phil Kennison or Terry Dibble or, you know, the folks who taught me when I was younger. Right. I, Exactly. I, I think all of us start teaching as 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 a kind of fan fiction. <laughs> you know, we we had professors who showed us that that this can be awesome. Yeah. And we want 
to be like them to the extent that we can. Um, but what a pedi- what a pedagogy class does is what a creative writing class does to you know the kid who who you know sort of got into creative writing through fan fiction. It helps them become more conscious of why what they loved um, was doing things well. Mm-hmm. You know, ha- how to think more critically about what they're doing so that so that they can understand why something is effective or why it isn't. What is of the essence of of good pedagogy and what is just, you know, incidental, you know, like, you know, valuing Tolkien for his detailed world building, but recognizing that not all fantasy literature has to have bearded dwarves in it. <laughs> I just feel like monoculture benefits only the people who control people via monoculture. Mm-hmm. You know, when when you have a when you have a universe ruled by corporations, mm-hmm. the monoculture benefits the corporations at the expense of almost everybody else. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're starting to have that's a good post Labor Day message right there. Uh, if you're starting to have a school <laughs> where it's it's actually kind of my socialist argument against socialism. <laughs> um, but but if you're starting to have a school where the the form of the classes is dictated, I mean I don't even like objectives being dictated. Mm-hmm. The, but the a class where a school where the forms of all the classes were dictated is certainly easier to control. It's certainly easier to evaluate, but at what cost? It's mm-hmm. not good for the students. It's not good for the professors. The only people it's good for are the. Uh, pencil pushers at the top you know yeah the people the people who have to put it into bare arithmetic form mm-hmm. well that that's i guess that's something that i'm not seeing in either of these pieces we read is mm-hmm. the fact that i mean when you set the cap for a required core course at 400 you're pretty much mandating a lecture that's mm-hmm. true so i mean i you know I, I guess, you know, the, the big panic that I see in these two pieces is, you know, schools saying, thou shalt not lecture, but it strikes me that the pencil pushers that Michael was just not, that, that was Michael was just talking about, pardon me, uh, are basically doing precisely the opposite, simply in terms of logistics. Mm-hmm. Another case for a small school. Well, believe it or not, it's harder to have monoculture at a small school than a big one. Oh, that's a yeah. I'd, I'd say that's definitely true. Go ahead, David. I'm sorry. Well, it makes me think of you know the kind of the, the Oxbridge style, um, which is lecture, yes, but also follow up with individ- with, with with tutorial. Mm-hmm. Um, which, to be fair, is how a lot of those big classes at state universities work. You get a lecture from the professor, and then you break into a group that's taught by graduate assistants. Right. Right, you know where where there's where both of those itches are being scratched, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, if if there's if there's a way to do that, but still, you know, heaping up all of those people like cordwood, um, yeah, there's there's issues, as they say, <laughs> as I've heard people say. <laughs> um. I mean, one of the reasons why I lecture in the way that I do, and I don't lecture all the time. You, you know, I'm teaching a, a class right now called Great Works One. We read mm-hmm. the Odyssey, two plays by Sophocles, Aeneid, Beowulf, some of Canterbury Tales, and Dante's Inferno. Mm-hmm. Um, so each 
each time when we start a book, I spend a class lecturing, introducing the book, where we talk about cultural context, date, authorship, um, literary structure. I kind of front load that information. And then in the classes that follow, I, what I try to do is something that's more seminar style. Um, but when, you know, when the students don't want to play, um, I then kind of fall into that medieval, okay, let's read the text and now let's comment on the text, you know, that kind of lecture. Um, Mm -hmm. but the whole time inviting students to kind of come into the conversation, um, you know, so, so I'm not, you know, just sort of up there hogging the mic the whole time, you know, for, (laughs) for, for me, the goal is to like some things the lecture I think is best at. Um, you know, I don't know how that you have a discussion about the cultural context and background and dating an author with people who largely haven't done the reading. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But once, once you're kind of into the text, then, you know, I think discussion makes more sense, but it's, it's how do you invite people into that mm-hmm. um, in a way that works? Anyway, so hybrid. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, that seems to be uh, what uh, the Atlantic piece uh, seems to encourage is, you know, some kind of incorporation of those interactive elements into the lecture. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, it, it's interesting and, you know, I haven't said a whole lot about, you know, my own teaching other than I don't lecture. Generally what I do is I design some sort of exercise where they have to show me what parts they've internalized and what parts they haven't. Mm. And then I will address those parts that need more attention. But I generally speaking, don't spend a whole lot of time on the stuff that they seem to have already gotten by reading. So, I mean, that, that's, that's kind of the way that I approach it. And, you know, uh, like I said before, you know, I, I tend to get fairly good marks on my teacher evaluations. I tend to avoid the, uh, he's not really teaching criticism, although I've been victim to that a few times. Um, but you know, like, I, like we, like Michael answered in one word, I mean, I, I would, I would not welcome, I'll put it that way. Uh, an administrator coming to me and saying, okay, uh, students need to have, you know, the basic background information. So therefore you must lecture 60% mm-hmm. of your class periods. So I guess for that reason, I mean, I also wouldn't want them going to my friends and colleagues over in history and saying, you can't lecture anymore. Mm-hmm. Stay weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, I want to swerve here at the end. Uh, as you see things, how does this conversation relate to the form of the homily in church settings? You did an episode on homily several years back. Uh, it was a fun conversation. So when we talk about that and when we talk about the college lecture, are we talking apples and oranges here or do these long running forms have more to do with each other's fates than that? I think it absolutely relates because language is sermonic. Aha! But, um, um, yeah, that, that was Richard Reaver, dear, dear listeners, go, go back and go back and read or listen to the, the Richard Reaver, um, series, um, because language is sermonic to me, a good lecture should be like, 
should embrace the kinds of things that Weaver talks about in terms of rhetoric that I think are embodied in the homily in the setting of the church. The point of the homily is not just to take the sacred text and expound it, right? That's not the point of the homily. Um, it's also, the point of the homily is also to lead the heart of the congregation as they hear, not only into understanding the text, but also in reorienting their hearts towards the realities that the text points to, Mm -hmm. um, teaching them to inhabit imaginatively um, and in their thinking the, the reality that the text sets forth, right? To teach them how to live and think and feel as people who live in the world that God works in as the text describes it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's, that I think is what the homily is inviting us to do. Um, and then, you know, to bring in the Richard Weaver stuff that all lang- all language, all exercises of speech have some designs upon the listener. Every, everybody wants to change your life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even if it's, even if it's just to buy this to- toothpaste and not that toothpaste. Um, I think a lecture, um, if, if thought about that way. What is what is the goal, and what way do I want to change what my students think and feel um, as a result of what I'm about to say? You know. Mm-hmm. So last week we introduced the Odyssey, and the thing that gave shape to my lecture was um, h- how do these issues about who was Homer was there a Homer? <laughs> Um, is the Odyssey a unified piece of composition? Um, how do we take, how do those kind of abstract and rarefied issues of authorship and composition, how do they actually end up making a difference when we come to read the end of the book alongside the, the beginning of the book, Mm -hmm. you know, um, so that, so that my lecture is sermonic. I'm giving application. I'm 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 telling you how this um, this information should be making a difference to the way that you then read the book that we're all reading together. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also attempting to communicate a way to feel about it, um, which a sermon should be doing as well. Communicating, um, you know, like you know Edward's favorite thing, um, good religious affections. Yes. Right? <laughs> um, you know, I think a lecture should be doing that too. I should be communicating a kind of um, infectious enthusiasm about the subject matter. And if they haven't caught it already, they need to catch it off of me in order for good conversations to happen. So, so yeah, I, th- I think the lecture absolutely has to do with the homily, not because I see the homily as a lecture, but because I see the lecture as a homily. Anything to add, Michael? No, I think that's I, I think that's good. I mean, one of the things we talked about during sermon the the sermon episode is that mm-hmm. sermons are a little different than lectures in the sense that I, we we didn't I think we all agree we didn't think preachers should expect people to listen to every single word because sometimes mm-hmm. what you're listening to is God instead. Um, but yeah. other than that, I th- <laughs> other than that, I think I think David's uh, David's thoughts were good. Okay. It's interesting, I and you know the reason that I, I got to thinking about this is that there are, of course, uh, sort of experimental churches that do some sort of conversational style of service rather than a traditional homily, 
Uh, and I, I've been to a couple of those, not very many, but I mean, they were interesting. And honestly, when I came out of them, I didn't feel like I had been deprived of having done church. Uh, I know that there are some folks who, who regard the oratorical style of the homily as, you know, essential to the church the way that I would regard, for instance, the Eucharist as essential to a church service. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want to discount that. Uh, but at the very least, and I realize we're, we're well out of time at this point, uh, <laughs> it, it's just a line of thought that occurred to me that, you know, uh, this doesn't end the conversation about these things, but I think it should begin a conversation about the forms of what we do both in church and university, uh, the interesting and complex ways in which the form and the content and the aims and the obstacles and all of those things that we talk about when we talk about rhetoric and dialectic come to play on this. Hmm. Well, at any rate, I have at the end of an episode where I said that I don't lecture much, I just ended with a mini lecture. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, let's uh, draw my hypocrisy to a close. Uh, what are we doing for our next show, Michael? Um, we're going to talk about Alan Jacobs' uh, recent essay, The Watchman, in which he bemoans the loss of the Christian public intellectual. Groovy. It's been making some waves, so we'll uh, surf them right to shore. Well, I, I look forward to reading that. Uh, in the meantime, listener, thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can find us, as I'm sure you already know, at christianhumanist.org on the web. We also have a Facebook page. Uh, we ask you, as always, uh, give us some ratings over on iTunes because it is the most popular distribution vehicle for podcasts. That's often how we get more people. Of course, word of mouth is the best kind of advertisement. So if you tell people about us orally, digitally, or in other forms that uh, hopefully your institution doesn't outlaw, we will be very uh, appreciative of that. Christian Humanist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our the press liaison is Kristen Philippic. <laughs> Our intern is Amberly Copeland. And at the end of a, an episode on lecturing in which I can't finish a sentence, I am Nathan Gilmore in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>